Hello, I'm Natasha Faroes, and this is Spectator Out Loud, where three authors from the magazine read their articles this week. First up, we've got Kate Andrews on why Rishi Sunak quit. Then, Sean Thomas on his encounter with Russian emigres in Armenia. And finally, Toby Young's piece on his admiration for the other Toby Young. First, Kate Andrews. On Tuesday, the last cabinet meeting with Sajid Javid as health secretary and Rishi Sunak as chancellor passed without any hint that either was about to resign. The ministers did not coordinate their resignations, but they had both been tipped over the edge by growing evidence that Number 10 had misled MPs by declaring Boris Johnson had no prior knowledge of Chris Pincher's behaviour. Sunak had also grown tired of the Prime Minister's economic cakeism, the fantasy of wanting both high spending and low taxes. The contradictions had become untenable. In that cabinet meeting, Johnson offered more cake. He was his usual ebullient self, promising a morale-raising speech to move on from recent woes. It was Michael Gove who confronted him. Now was the time for candor, he said, not misleading boosterism. Tackling inflation would be very painful, so there's no sense in pretending otherwise. And didn't part of the problem rest around the cabinet table? Fiscal nimbyism, he called it. Ministers claim to love low taxes, but when spending cuts are suggested to make a low-tax economy possible, they all say, not in my department. In Sunak's resignation letter, in which he noted his, quote, fundamentally different, end quote, economic approach to the prime minister, he made it clear that he agrees with Gove. Quote, our people know that if something is too good to be true, he wrote, then it's not true, end quote. The highest spending in decades had been coupled with the highest tax burden in living memory. Sunak could no longer pretend otherwise. The prospect of a joint speech with the prime minister over the summer is also said to have contributed to his decision to resign. He was not interested in delivering feel-good remarks without substance behind them. He never has been. The former chancellor was notably the only minister at party conference last October not using the low-tax rallying cry with the base. He couldn't bring himself to say it with the tax burden at a 70-year high and no real prospect on the horizon of bringing it down until Johnson changed his spending tune. In the hours before Johnson appointed Nadeem Zahawi as his new chancellor, he boasted to Tory MPs that losing Sunak would make tax cuts, quote, a bit easier to deliver, end quote. Had Johnson's premiership survived a few more months, Number 10 would have put pressure on Zahawi to make this happen, while also sticking to Johnson's big spending promises. It's difficult, however, to see how this position would have ever been possible when every 1p cut from income tax cost the government £5 billion. Zahawi used his first, and now possibly only, interview as Chancellor to suggest that he could scrap Sunak's plan to raise corporation tax from 19% to 25% next year. Yet despite his hints at tax cuts, not much is known about his economic view. As a backbencher, he joined the Free Enterprise Group, a caucus of free market MPs, but has been fairly quiet since. Those close to him say he's attracted to the idea, popular among supporters of Liz Truss, that the government's COVID debt should be treated like war debt, a one-off paid back over decades, which might extend the government's fiscal headroom to allow more borrowing for spending boosts and tax cuts. Sunak believed this approach was hugely dangerous. To borrow your way out of an inflation crisis at a time when interest rates are soaring, risk deteriorating the public finances further, and in the worst-case scenario, triggering a debt crisis. Just as Sunak warned well over a year ago, inflation and higher borrowing costs have dramatically hiked the government's debt servicing bill. The UK is more exposed than other major countries because roughly a quarter of the national debt is linked to inflation. 
Interest on the national debt was £7.6 billion for the month of May, almost twice what it was last year and the fourth highest monthly amount on record. And what happens when the gap between spending promises and tax promises becomes so large that borrowing will not be able to cover it? This isn't just a COVID problem, though the pandemic exacerbated the strain on public finances. Healthcare and pension costs were forecast to become unsustainable long before lockdowns. Spending on the NHS alone is predicted to reach 44% of the government's day-to-day outgoings in the next three years. Extra debt might stretch over the gap between what's promised and what's deliverable for a while, but it can't last. Tax cuts would help ease the pain felt by the cost-of-living crisis and possibly boost morale, at least temporarily, among the Tory grassroots, but they would not address the fundamental economic problem of growth, which is predicted to be the lowest in the G20 next year, apart from Russia. This government's decision not to pursue substantial supply-side reform became the biggest limit on what any chancellor could achieve. Some had big ambitions for boosting economic growth and adding to the Treasury's coffers by creating more, rather than more heavily burdened, taxpayers. But tax cuts will only get results if they are supported with a well-crafted system of reform designed to liberalize the most bogged-down sectors, mainly housing and healthcare. Tory backbenchers have suggested they will not tolerate such reforms, and so the PM, at the mercy of his parliamentary party, also refused to budge. In the end, Sunak's Thatcherite tendencies to look after the deficit clashed too much with Johnson's Reaganite feeling that the deficit was big enough to look after itself. Sunak wanted to fund tax cuts with spending cuts. Johnson rejected this trade-off. So the Prime Minister moved on to his third Chancellor in less than three years, switching personnel rather than policies. And now the party prepares to switch leaders. That was Kate Andrews. Next, Sean Thomas. If you're wondering where all those urbane, clever, westernised Russian travellers have gone since the onset of the Ukrainian war, a war which has largely barred them from the West, I can tell you that at least two of them will be found in the tiny Armenian hamlet of Gnishik, high in the summery peaks of the Caucasus. I know this because I met them there last week, and what they told me about Russia, the war, their lives since the war, was illuminating. This meeting wasn't planned. I'd made the long, potholed drive from the sunburned Iraini winelands, lost in their red rock canyons, up to the wild-flowered heights, because I'd heard you could find bears up there, maybe even leopards, along with 6,000-year-old megaliths carved with intricate 10th-century quasi-Celtic Kashkars, talismanic Armenian crosses. I never saw the bears. I did find the knackered and poetic Kashkars, guarded by wild horses, and then... In the glassy guesthouse kitchen, I came across two thirty-something Russians, Mikhail and Ludmila, eating organic greens and Megralian salami and drinking moonshine Armenian vodka. As often happens when Russians with vodka meet strangers, they warmly asked me to join them. Taking the vodka bottle to the top floor, we sat on the balcony and gazed out at the moon over the dark blue mountains, and they sketched in their details. Ludmilla explained that she managed art galleries in Moscow. Mikhail told me he was in IT. From the way they dressed, to their well-travelled anecdotes, to their excellent English, I surmised he was quite high up in IT. Inevitably, the conversation moved on to the Ukrainian conflict, and this is where their stories became properly interesting. Ludmilla explained, We were in Cairo, in Egypt, having a holiday. One morning I woke up in our hotel and stared at my phone. I could not believe it. We'd invaded Ukraine? 
I thought it was a joke. I wanted to believe it was a joke. I was horrified. Pouring me my nth shot of burning vodka, Mikhail added, We knew we had to get home as soon as we could. If your country is at war, you go home. But all the flights, they had quadrupled in price. Everyone was going home to Russia. Ludmila leaned down and fed her little dog a morsel of salami. And everything became so much more difficult in so many other ways, immediately. Uber did not work for us. Google Pay and Apple Pay, they were switched off. Our credit cards no longer functioned. We had to do everything with cash. There were enormous queues of Russians at the end. It might have been the vodka, but this confused me. Were Western sanctions imposed that swiftly? Did we shut down financial links with Russia right after Vladimir Putin dropped his paratroops over Kiev? I asked them, but they didn't really reply, because Mikhail became impassioned. The sanctions, they are terrible, they hurt everyone, you have to stop them. I did not know how to answer this, because I was thinking, well, obviously the sanctions are working, because they are designed to hurt. Ludmila saved me from any embarrassment, she eagerly went on with their tale. When we finally got home, it was no better. Mikhail's business could not do anything because of the sanctions, so we had to come here, Armenia. Mikhail's boss is from Yerevan. Why does everyone hate the Armenians? They are so friendly, kind, intelligent. I asked them about family in Russia. Knocking back another vodka, munching another pickle, Mikhail laughed darkly. I argued with my mother. I told her I hated the war. My mum said I was unpatriotic. We barely talk now. So here we are. But I want to move on. Maybe Georgia, Tbilisi. You said you were there last week. What is it like, Tbilisi? Are they okay about Russians? I hesitated, but I decided to tell them the truth. Because I had just come from Tbilisi, and because Mikhail and Ludmila were so nice, so generous, so funny. In other words, they were just like most Russians I have met over many years of travel. They deserved the truth. They don't really like Russians in Tbilisi. I'm sorry. Mikhail sighed. There are Ukrainian flags everywhere? Yes, loads of them, and lots of anti-Russian graffiti. Why? Why do they dislike us? Because you invaded them like you invaded Ukraine. Maybe you should stop invading places. Mikhail looked my way and laughed, like I had a point, but it was beyond the wit of man to make it better. Ludmila was now gazing at the empty vodka bottle disconsolately. The mountain air was still and warm. Mikhail disappeared, then somehow returned with another vodka bottle. This one is really homemade, he said, chuckling. With refilled glasses, we toasted each other, we toasted peace, and we watched the stars glittering over Nakichevan, the hostile Azeri exclave. Then Mikhail said, You know, I hate the war, but we have to win it. I am scared that Putin will order a mobilisation, but if he does, I will fight. Russia is my country. M Russia must win the war. Then he necked his 16th glass of vodka, and I thought, blurrily, even the emigres want to win the war. Even the westernized Russian emigres who love the West and hate the war want to win the war, which means the war is existential. It was a troubling notion. I dismissed it by downing another vodka, and another. Ludmila led us into a couple of boozy, homesick songs, and then we sat there in happy silence, listening out for the fabled bears of South Armenia. That was Sean Thomas. And finally, Toby Young. My admiration for the other Toby Young. By me, Toby Young. It started again. 16 years ago, another Toby Young kept appearing in my email inbox. I'd created a Google alert telling the search engine to send me an email every time my name popped up on the internet. 
but this Toby turned out to be a 47-year-old woman who was running the dog rehabilitation program at a correctional facility in Leavenworth, Kansas. The reason she hit the headlines is because she fell in love with John Maynard, a 25-year-old inmate serving a life sentence for murder, and smuggled him out of the prison in a dog crate. They went on the lam together for 12 days and were the subject of a nationwide manhunt, manna from tabloid heaven. After they were caught, Maynard went back to his cell and Toby was sentenced to 27 months. I thought I'd seen the last of my namesake, but this week she started cropping up again in my Google alerts. Turns out an American cable channel has made a film about the unlikely couple as part of its Ripped from the Headline series. Jailbreak Lovers stars Catherine Bell as the married, church-going dog lady and Tom Stevens as the red-headed killer. To coincide with the film's debut, Toby has written a book called Living with Conviction, Unexpected Sisterhood, Healing and Redemption in the Wake of Life-Altering Choices, which she's energetically promoting. Her website, Escape Your Prison, says she's available to give after-dinner speeches. It would be easy to mock this other Toby Young, but the more I learn about her, the more sympathetic she seems. She describes herself as a rule follower, the type of person who would stop and count to three whenever she encountered a stop sign in her car. She married her high school sweetheart at 20, the only boy she'd ever kissed, and raised two sons, never missing a high school game they were playing in. She was a pillar of the community who'd always done everything expected of her, until she met John Maynard. He stopped directly in my path, eclipsing the blazing autumn sun, which created a dazzling crown of light, she writes, describing their first meeting in the prison. He offered his hand, and with a deep drawl he announced, I'm John Maynard. I'd like to be your next dog handler. One day, she got into an argument with another prisoner, who she thought was about to hit her, and Maynard came to her rescue, squaring up to the man and telling him to go back to his cell. After that, Maynard was allowed to serve as her bodyguard whenever she visited the prison, and the two became close. He would compliment her, saying nice things about her clothes and hair, and she enjoyed the attention. She felt invisible to her firefighter husband after 27 years of marriage, and it was intoxicating to be noticed again. In the TV miniseries Escape at Danamora, which is based on a true story, Patricia Arquette plays a middle-aged prison employee who is manipulated by two inmates who feign romantic interest to persuade her to help them escape. But Maynard's interest in Toby appears to have been genuine. As he pointed out to a journalist, he didn't ditch her once he'd gained his freedom, but remained shacked up with her in a wood cabin until they were caught. That, in turn, makes Toby more appealing. She wasn't duped by a psychopath. This was a genuine love affair. She paid a heavy price for following her heart. Her husband filed for divorce before she stood trial, and her two sons refused to speak to her. Her father, who had stage four bladder cancer, died eight weeks after her arrest, and her mother and some of her siblings blamed her for his death. Her mother visited her almost every week in prison, and she remained on good terms with her two brothers, but her relationship with her four sisters proved irreparable. The story has a happy ending. She met and married another man and has turned her notoriety into a business opportunity, teaching courses to other women trapped in loveless marriages, although she doesn't advise them to follow her example. And this goes to the heart of what makes her story so compelling. Like many people, she was leading a life of quiet desperation, but instead of resigning herself to it, she saw an opportunity to break free and seized it. What she did was reckless and irresponsible and caused many of those closest to her a good deal of pain. But it also took courage, and for that, I salute her.
That was Toby Young. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read more great articles like these three. I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next week. 